One thing to know is that uh, brain diseases, neurological disorders are the leading source of disability in the world. So more than cancer, more than heart disease, more than infectious wow, diseases, Did not know neurological that. diseases, stroke, migraine, epilepsy, are the, the Parkinson's disease are the leading cause of disability in the world. So if you wow. look at the world and you want to say what's causing the most of disability in the world, it's not infectious diseases, it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's not lung disease, it's brain disease. And welcome to the Darren Woodson Show. Uh, if you are watching us right now, you'll realize right off the bat that we're a little bit light today. Yeah, we are. Uh, so our uh, our fearless leader, the, in, engine. In, the, the engine, engine that drives us, uh, is um, uh, is not able to make it today. Uh, for once, this is I think was the second episode second he's missed. Episode that second ben episode that Ben has missed. actually missed. Yes, and it's probably going to be and, his favorite right <laughs> yeah, here. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And, and his favorite is is part of the reason is because well we're here, but the main reason is that uh, Dr. Ray Dorsey uh, is joining us, and I'm just going to give a very quick bio because whatever I say does not do justice to, to your accomplishments. Uh, but Dr. Dorsey, and, and we're going to refer to him as Ray. He's asked us off, off air to refer yeah. to him as, as, as Ray, because, uh, we are friends. Ray, Ray. And that's, <laughs> I didn't want to say Ray, Ray, but that's why he said, hey, call me Ray, Ray. So, but Ray, I think, I think Mr. Woodson, your middle name is Ray. It is. Oh, yes, it is. See, see? He is a researcher at yeah, heart. That is why he is solving <laughs> all the problems that he's solving. We'll talk about, but, uh, uh, Dr. Dorsey is a, a David M. Levy professor of neurology and director of the Center for Health and Technology at the University of Rochester Medical Center. Uh, he completed his undergraduate uh, studies at Stanford, uh, medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, or Penn, mm. and business school at the Wharton School. So, so we have two people here. We have a third co-host, and then we have a producer. And the person on the other side of that screens mental capacity and intelligence <laughs> is greater than that of those combined of this show. So just wait, that right wait, there. So I, got another, I got another factoid. Mr. Darren Woodson, I think had like a career high 12 tackles against my Stanford football. team. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. And I, and I think maybe he lined up against a certain Senator Cory Booker. I, I, Corey I Booker. They, uh, you're right. I never thought about that. That's right, work, man. Yeah, you Where's put your work, work in. You see, you get the Stanford grad, yeah, uh, you, see, you know, uh, out there. Yeah, it takes a Stanford grad to, to bring me back into order of understanding exactly what's that's took right, place. That's but, right. but, but he met, he mentioned Corey Book. You mentioned names like can you look night in the nineties? It's where all the greatness was. Mm. It's just greatness. You weren't even born back mm. then, Ty. You have no idea what easy, was happening. Easy. Just I think barely. I think and then you probably played against uh, Bob Whitfield too. Bob Whitfield uh, as well. Yeah, there's some great players in the Pac-12 back then. A Pac-10 back then. I guess. Yeah. yeah. All right, go ahead. Yeah, I would say a couple other accomplishments. So he and a, he and a few of his colleagues, uh, they are the author of the book "Ending Parkinson's Disease," and we're going to talk about a correlation between Parkinson's disease and former NFL players. Darren and I mm -hmm. obviously having close roots to that, uh, but he also is helping investigate new treatments for movement disorders uh, and improve uh, the way care is delivered for individuals with neurological disorders, uh, and really specifically focused on Parkinson's. Um, Really, just we are so thankful for yes. for everything. One that you're doing, 
to to really help eradicate and treat this disease, uh, but also just for the time that you've taken out of that mission to join us today. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Delighted and excited to be with you guys. Awesome. So if you've listened to the show uh, in the past, we really like to dig into the journey. You have a very, very specific, impactful career path that you've chosen, and, and your purpose uh, is to combat Parkinson's disease. But how did we get there? So let's let's go back to uh, young Ray Ray uh, and, <laughs> and where, where, where you grew up, what family life was like, um, going through school. What was it like for you? Uh, so I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, so I'm used to my football team losing. <laughs> I still remember, so I'll give you a story. So 1981, nine years old, I have uh, four brothers, uh, but there are two of us, three of us all right one, one after another. Huge Bengals fans. Uh, Ken Anderson, uh, Bengals playing Joe Montana in uh, Super, Super Bowl, Bowl 16. Yes. Mm-hmm. Pete Johnson, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times, stuffed at the goal line. Mm, yeah. Bengals lose Super Bowl. Dorsey Boys in tears. Mm. Uh, yeah. Oh, man. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> That's probably your only chance. <laughs> I know. Play action would have been nice, I think. Yeah. But it was 1981, so there wasn't much uh, play action. Right. So, so the Cincinnati Bengals, the 91 Cincinnati Bengals, are watching that Seattle. Seahawks Patriots drive oh, and they're like we know how you feel yeah we know, <laughs> we know how you feel <laughs> right one there. other play call would have been the difference in the Super Bowl <laughs> bootleg something yeah okay so grew up in Cincinnati heartbroken at 91 where we go from there before 81. The 81 81 I'm sorry 81, 81. yeah yeah Way before his time. Um, so, uh, you know, both my parents are psychiatrists, so I rebelled and I became a neurologist. Um, that's mm. the, big, the, big, the big rebellion. So I, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. And then, uh, you know, the brain's a pretty cool thing to study. Um, and uh, Parkinson's disease is a, uh, is a very treatable condition, but now it's the world's fastest growing brain disease in the world, even faster than Alzheimer's disease. Mm. And my colleagues and I wrote this book because uh, it is titled Ending Parkinson's Disease. But we think the first thing you need to do to any pandemic is to prevent people from becoming uh, further affected, whether that's chronic traumatic encephalopathy for football players. You know, we're not going to cure CTE likely. I hope we do. But, you know, we can prevent a lot of people from ever getting CTE. We can prevent a lot of people from ever getting Parkinson's disease. We can prevent a lot of people from ever getting Alzheimer's disease. And that's what's really um, burning passion for me is to how to prevent people from ever getting diseases in the first place. So when you were a younger kid, was it was the brain a part of what you wanted to study? I mean, when did you figure out that, listen, I wanted to go into this and be a doctor? You know, I remember seven years, seven years old, I was asked, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a doctor. And I said, why? And because my mom and dad are. So mm-hmm. it, it, it wasn't a very deep thought, but it was a deeply ingrained. Yeah. Uh, and it's really a privilege to be able to do what we do. And I think um, if you think about it, what's a great gift a doctor can do? You know, curing diseases is fantastic. But if you can prevent people from ever getting Absolutely. the disease in the first place, what a gift uh, that is. And we don't really do enough of that in American medicine. We try to go from disease to treatment. And we're really thinking now how we go to disease to cause and then how do we prevent people from ever getting these things in the first place? See, that's that's incredible. I yeah. love that. So let's, okay, so you said at seven you wanted to be a doctor because your parents were. 
But was that enough? You said it was ingrained in you. Was that enough to really motivate you through through school? Was school just kind of easy for you? Were you pushing yourself at that age? Because, okay, the, the goal is to be a doctor, and I know the work that I have to do because my parents have shared that with me. What was that like? I, I would just say, like, you guys are professional athletes. You know, uh, what are academics? We're professional students. Mm. And, you know, I was really good as a student. Yeah. Probably still have a great capacity to learn. Unfortunately, yeah. a great capacity to forget. But yeah. Yeah. a great capacity to learn. So, you know, school always came pretty uh, easy to me. And I just loved it. I mean, yeah. I mean, think about it. You know, what better, you know, especially in the environment I am, you know, you get to learn, you get to do really well, and you get rewarded for it. I yeah. mean, that's what school is. And, you know. Just like you get on the, you know, you get that on the football field. You know, I got that in the classroom, mm-hmm. and you know that, that that gives you a little high and a little buzz. And I loved it, and just kept going with it. And I love to learn. That's awesome. So you grew up in Cincinnati, and you ended up doing your undergraduate at Stanford. What was that move like? So end of the like late eighties, early nineties mm-hmm. is when you were at Stanford. Uh, what was that move from Ohio to the Bay Area of California, Palo Alto? So. Uh, th- uh, in between, I moved from Cincinnati to Southern California. So okay. I went to high school in Newport Beach, California. Oh, so right. I, I went to right. uh, I, I went to a school in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, very insular, private, where you know I couldn't even wear this shirt because it's got stripes on it. You know, you were only allowed a blue Oxford or a white Oxford. Nice. You guys yeah. are looking yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you're only allowed a blue Oxford or a white Oxford, but you had to have khaki pants or navy pants. You had to have dark shoes with laces and dark socks. And then I went to high school in Southern California, uh, Newport Harbor High School, then Corona Del Mar High School. And I remember asking the guidance counselor, you know, what's the dress code? You got to, like, figure this out. You know, when we're doing push-ups in the hallway. And he, he paused. Uh, he reflected. And he goes, well, I guess clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to California. <laughs> yeah. I learned shoes were optional. Yeah. Shoes yes. were optional. Tank tops and, you know, uh, shorts were like the uh, preferred <laughs> were the thing. So that, that was my, I didn't learn much in the classroom <laughs> in, uh, in high school. I learned a lot outside the classroom yeah. and then I went to Stanford, but that, that once I had my Southern California yeah. experience, the, the Stanford thing was, uh, was not too hard. <laughs> so was it in Stanford? So let's, let's fast forward to Stanford. Was it at Stanford where you decided that this is the road you wanted to go down or was it something else that you were heavily involved with? It time. was there. It was already there. It was like, it was preordained. I, mm-hmm. The only thing, only time I deviated, you mentioned I went to business school and mm-hmm. actually I took two years out. I worked for a consulting firm for a couple of years instead of doing a residency. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for medicine, you go to college, medical school, and then residency, like for neurology right. or orthopedic surgery. And I took a two year detour. That was the only time I took a two year uh, a detour, which was very surprising to me at the time. Mm-hmm. But I did that for a couple of years. And then I had this great advice from uh, a neurologist, from one of my mentors. He said, he said, I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. And I was making a lot of money, but I wasn't passionate about what I was doing. And he says, you should come back to residency. Uh, you won't feel complete unless you do. You won't mm. feel complete unless you do. And uh, so I called my wife. <laughs> Bless her. And I said, what do you think about my going back to residency and, you know, taking a, a figure off my salary? And, you know, we had wow. a couple of kids at the time. And she said, fine. And um, I did it. And it was the right move. It was the right move to go uh, off uh, for a couple of years. And it was the right move uh, to come back. I had a lot of support to be fortunate to be able to do that. So for the, our listeners that are out there, explain to them what residency, because it's a beating, explain yeah. to them what residency means. 
Yeah, it's probably like training camp and you don't have a job like in the NFL or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Like, you know, right where you're like, you know, it's the thing. So I'll tell you, I think the best way to describe it is they put regulations right around when in the midst of my residency that limited you to 80, 80 hours per week of working. Limited, <laughs> because that was needed. We needed to that, that was what was had to be done. And, and then they thought we were soft. <laughs> uh, because you were, I mean, I remember my first night on call as an intern. So I took these two years out and I came back to medicine. I didn't know anything. You're like, you forget everything right, right. after two years. And I was on, I went at seven o'clock in the morning and I was on call overnight, which means you stay in the hospital overnight. I was there till 10 o'clock the next day, uh, having not slept. Mm. And so I saw nurses come and go shifts come and go. So I was like, I literally thought I was going to have a seizure <laughs> Uh, from just being, I mean, I was up for 36 some plus hours a day and it was just crazy. Um, it got better once I figured out what I was doing, but you know, it could be that extreme and it, and it's, it's gotten better, but it's still bad and it's still exploitative because you know, you're getting paid, you know, 40,000. I mean, I got $40,000 a year, you know, working 80 hours a week, you know, you know, it's fine, 40,000, but you know, yeah, yeah. uh, But when you're going through medical school, right. Like that's not the (laughs) picture that you have in your head, right? right? Like, I'm going to work my tail oh, off right yeah. now to not sleep and make $40,000. And I get it. Like, you know, that's all part of it and you, you expect it. But, but that was a perfect analogy, the training camp. Like yeah, it was. Yeah. you're like, when is this going to end? Is this yeah. ever going to end? And like groundhog day yeah. every day. And and we only make a thousand dollars a week. Yeah. And this is a beating yeah. over and, and over. No and autonomy. Over. And no. no control. No. None. No. Zero. No. Yeah. Like, you know, going to, you had this pager, you carried this is like, I don't know you guys remember a pager. You yes. had a pager. I mean, you could not go to the bathroom without getting paged. I mean, it, uh-huh. it was just like, um, yeah, it was just messed up. So where did you, where did you do your residency? <laughs> yeah, I was University of Pennsylvania. I, I, I did one in city, uh, my internship, my first year at Emerson Hospital in Northwestern in Chicago. That was yeah. fine. Uh-huh. Then the, 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 the bigger those Mecca hospitals, you know, just like, you know, their Mecca, you know, football schools, uh, the Hospital University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia at Penn. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the first teaching hospital in the country. I mean, one of the first. And so it, it was intense, but it was, I had great guys, you know, just like you guys, you know, what right. gets you through is, you know, you have great camaraderie with, uh, yeah. These guys, they were all guys in, in my class. And we just had a fantastic time together. That's awesome. I'm going to take a shot at Philly right now. You know, you know Philly's going to put, oh, yeah. put something some dirty in those hospitals yeah. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Dallas Cowboys uh, hate, hate uh, shade on And let me uh, tell you, Philly. in Philly, they, like the, the administrative, the secretaries knew like who the backup Outside linebacker yeah. was for the Eagles. I yeah. mean, it was intense. <laughs> yeah, that secretary will fight you too. Yeah, for that. sure. Yeah. She, yeah. She's brawler. Okay, so so you go through uh, at Northwestern. You start there, uh, finish your residency at Penn. Um, then what was next for you? Where when you and, and your residency was in neurology, correct? In neurology. Okay. And I told you I'm a professional student, so academics are professional students, so it doesn't end. Uh, so I did a two-year fellowship. I came to Rochester, New York, and did a two-year fellowship studying Parkinson's disease and mm-hmm. uh, related things and learning how to conduct clinical trials and do uh, research. Mm-hmm. And then I was here for a few years, and I went to Hopkins for three years, um, and then I came back to Rochester, where I am today. All right. So, so Ray, what what piqued your interest? I I, I keep going back into this, but what piqued your interest into neurology specifically, not Parkinson's, but just neurology? Um, 
you know, I was thinking it was like, uh, I was really interested in neuroscience and I, I knew uh, that's what I wanted to do. And we had a great program at Penn where you did extra psychiatry, extra neurology and extra neurosurgery. And so mm-hmm. when I did that, I was like neurology or neurosurgery. Uh, I loved the intensity of neurosurgery, but you know, I, even then I knew I had interests that were beyond like what was typical for a neurologist mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mentioned this consulting stuff and stuff like that. Uh, and I knew if I do neurosurgery that that was to be an all consuming uh, thing. Yeah. And that's all you do, you know, live, breathe and eat uh, neurosurgery uh, for 30 years. And I wasn't sure I wanted to live, breathe and eat uh, neurosurgery uh, for 30 years. So neurology was a, a nice thing. Um, you got to, care for people. I like being with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you tend to be with older people cause that's, uh, the demographic. And I, uh, I kind of like hanging out with, uh, older people and there was a lot of need and, yeah. I, and I just outstanding teachers. I mean, I, you can't underestimate, you know, you had great coaches and, yeah. you know, I think, I think Dave Campbell, like you're, you coached you in college was your yeah. head football. I mean, like that, I mean, how much influence has he had on your life? And, you know, you get these uh, relationships uh, that you get. And so um, those are really powerful. Describe the difference for those that may be, because I, I would say it was even for a long time hard, <clears throat> excuse me, hard for me to distinguish the difference between neurology and your parents' psychiatry or psychology. So describe mm-hmm. the difference to listeners and, and the disorders associated with each. Mm-hmm. I would say um, one is the disorders. Uh, so like the psychiatry is more depression, bipolar disorder, substance abuse, schizophrenia, uh, neurology, stroke, seizures, migraines, uh, Parkinson's mm. disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS, yeah. Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, and then there's an orientation. Um, psychiatry looks at behavior a lot. Uh, neurologists look a lot at anatomy. So you damage this part of the brain, you can't move this arm. Uh, you damage this part of the brain, you lose memory. Uh, you damage this part of the spinal cord, you can't move your legs. Uh, so neurology is really, really focused on the anatomy of the brain and the spinal cord and the nerves, and that's kind of how we look at the world. So if we see somebody's can't move their right arm, where does that localize to in the brain? That means that the left part of the mm-hmm. brain, some damages to the left part of the brain. Mm-hmm. So we neurologists are really focused on trying to figure out what a symptom is and tying that to the location of the brain or spinal cord. How, how often is there carryover, right? If there's a, a behavioral, um, uh, si- not side effect, but a, a symptom, behavioral symptom, but it's actually a neurological issue. Like do, how often does that cross over, whether it be a, a, a tumor or, or something else? Yeah, all the time, because these are just artificial ways of looking at the world. It's just like, you know, uh, a defensive back looks at at the world much differently than a running back, right? You're all playing the same game, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the defensive back is looking at the quarterback and looking at the wide receiver and the the, the running back is like, I'm not going to get killed, you know? We don't uh, think so, that. We don't uh, think that. We we think about which one of those DBs are we going to run over. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> not, not the truth. It's fight or flight. Yeah, and then so like you know Alzheimer's disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So you get impulsive, impulsive, impulsivity, and the neurologist says, well, that's because you're damaging the frontal lobes of, of the brain. Mm-hmm. The psychiatrist is is like, well, what can we do to modify that? How can we change the behavior? Can we give cognitive behavioral therapy? Uh, to help them out. So some of these things, it's just, they're just two different ways of looking at the world that neither is better or worse, Uh but they're both complementary and they're just different orientations, but they overlap all the time. 
Uh, okay. That no, that's that that's helpful because I just I think right now mental health is at the yeah. forefront of our society, right? Especially the yeah. last few years. And and yeah. and I and I'm not gonna say it's it's the platform has just grown, you know, really with the CTE and then it which is a physical neuro, neurological ailment, but then mental health. I know like Brandon Marshall is 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 a good buddy of mine. And you know, he brought awareness back in 2012 and 13 to the mental health side, mm-hmm. the bipolar disorder and and um and and now with COVID, right, the mental health is is even more on the forefront because of the effects, this the the side effects that came from um from isolation, yeah. um, you know, from from all the things that COVID brought. So And that's one of the questions I did I, I do have for you, uh, Doc, is is where has the mental health aspect been there forever? And why is it all of a sudden that we have started to shed all this light on it right now? Well, think about what we're doing uh, to ourselves. You know, the worst punishment that humans gives to other pun- other humans is solitary confinement. Yeah. Mm. And uh, what are we doing? Um, you know, I should be hanging out with you in the studio, right? And we'd be, right. you know, go grab lunch and we'd go, we'd go, you know, play, shoot some hoops or something. Right. That's what we would be That's doing. Right. So we'll do it. We'll do a rain check on that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, uh, for the kids, you know, you know, no kids like, you know, kids love school. Right. Uh, you know, every five year old like loves to go to love school. Why do they love school? Not because they're learning that two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. You know, I like that. But, you know, most kids are like because they're going to hang out with their buddies. Yeah. Right. And they get to make new friends and they get to socialize and they get a really nice teacher who cares about them. Um, so I think all those things that we're giving up, I think in some cases we're giving up too much of it. We don't mean to doing as much as we uh, are doing and it's, you know, wreaking havoc. And I think it's wreaking havoc for young kids. Um, and for teenagers, I have a teenage boy, you know, uh, I won't go there, but you know, it's just wreaking havoc for, for all of us. Um, and so I, I think it's just, our pun- the worst punishment we give to people is solitary confinement. And what are we doing trying to get solitary? Confinement. So what is the interaction doing to the brain? What is, what is it that, that, that I want? Yeah. We got to go down that road. So what's interaction yeah. like those kids that are sitting at home all the time. Now they're they're you know, as opposed to those kids that, you know, are like myself and Tyler and how we all grew up, we're out active all the time. They, yeah. you know, mom had to call us in and say that the lights are going down. You come home. That's it. But you know, what is it that, what's the difference there? So the neurologist would say, you know, what are the neuroanatomical differences that are happening? So one, we can't know because we don't have great ways of measuring it. So we'll just say learning in general. So how do we learn? Uh, Is that nerve cells, they're called neurons, make connections to other nerve cells. And in the process of learning, those connections become bigger and more efficient. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's how you, you know, you react to, you know, when you see a different formation in the backfield, you quickly see it is and you've learned to be able to recognize that. And, you know, half a second when when you're beginning, you take you two seconds to figure it out. And just like, uh, you know, I can look at someone and say they get Parkinson's disease because I look at the way that they hold their hand and I've learned and I've learned how to do that. When you're not learning, you're not forming those connections between nerve cells in the brain. And, you know, you might be forming other connections that are, you know, really good for playing video games, but they might not be really good for socializing and reading people's faces and carrying on a conversation. I mean, right, we can carry on this conversation not because we did – if we did Zoom all our life, we would probably not be as good at carrying on conversations right. as we are carrying on conversations because we know 
what it's like to be in the room and we can imagine being in the room and we can imagine, you know, my reaching across the table to do it. So, you know, when we're changing the way we learn and we're learning less, we're making less uh, connections, probably in less valuable parts of the brain that uh, are important for being a happy and functioning, you know, seven-year-old or 17-year-old or 70-year-old. Man, I, I just, I, I never really correlated, right? Because you always think it's an emotional issue, right. but the physical the physical changes that yeah the kids over the last few years. And I would say even too, just culturally, I think we were already trending that direction mm-hmm. and then it was just accelerated by COVID, right. right? Because everything was virtual. Everything was text. Everything was uh, FaceTime. Everything, I mean, that was, it's not like this is all new technology, right? right? right. It was, we were already trending in that direction. So, so in neurology, uh, what is what is one of the hot things? And I want to get into specifically what you're doing. I want to get a couple of these out of the way. But sp- what is a hot topic that you guys in the whole neurology? And, and I know you've got a focus on uh, Parkinson's, but what is a hot topic that is is at the forefront of research and conversations within um, you know the research community? Uh, so I'll put away side Parkinson's disease. Uh, I, one thing to know is that uh, brain diseases, neurological disorders are the leading source of disability in the world. So more than cancer, more than heart disease, more than infectious wow, diseases, did not know neurological that. diseases, stroke, migraine, epilepsy, are the, the Parkinson's disease are the leading cause of disability in the world. So if you wow. look at the world and you want to say what's causing the most of disability in the world, it's not infectious diseases, it's not cancer, it's not heart disease, it's not lung disease, it's brain disease. So that's, that's, uh, that's probably the biggest thing. Now, I think a lot of people are like excited, you know, can you take the electrical activity that the brain is, you know, think of it as like a a computer and can you uh, read that with a computer and have your different body parts move? So you guys have probably seen even probably some football players, you know, they, they've got paralyzed and you can like map the electrical activity that's going on in the brain and then have use that electrical activity to change, to move your arm that's previously mm-hmm. paralyzed or move a dot or a cursor uh, on a screen. Um, you know, uh, you know, can you externalize the brain? I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. like, you know, that's pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. Have you heard, and this is, we're totally tangent here. Uh, have you heard like Elon Musk's no, his, yeah. his whole his whole thing that the implant that is there any validity to that is is that is that doable? So there's this guy named Ray Kurzweil. This is, we're going a little bit afar. He's a chief in, chief engineer at Google, mm-hmm. and he wrote this book uh, maybe 20 years ago called The Singularity. And he viewed that uh, brains and computers would become merged directly together, become one and the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think there's a lot more to being human than just the brain and just yeah. being a computer. But um, I think those kinds of things could be uh, happening. I mean, it's got ways to go, but, yeah. you know, it's out there. So, so as we speak, like, to, to brain disease, and, and, yeah. and you just, man, that woke me up. I, I didn't know that, you know, that was, you know, that the numbers were, were, were that scary. But yeah. is that based on you know, chemicals, pesticides is, you know, what is the, what, what is it in the, in the environment that has changed things? Um, so one, we get older, we're more susceptible to these injuries and we have less ability to overcome them. Just like, you know, a football player, you know, when you're seven years old or eight years old, you sprain your ankle and you're back in, you're yeah, in good right. shape, you know, uh, two hours later. 
uh, when you get exposed to these chemicals and pesticides, your ability, A, they take a toll over time, and B, your ability to compensate uh, uh, diminishes over time. Um, so that's aging is a big thing. I think, you know, for Parkinson's disease, and we'll sit, start with there, that a lot of this is man-made. Um, so, wow. uh, so lung cancer, you know, there was, if you look at the data, there was almost no lung cancer in the United States 100 years ago. I'll say that again. Mm. There was almost no lung cancer in the United States 100 years ago. Just didn't exist. It was considered, uh, it was it was the type of thing that all the doctors would gather around when they had a person with lung cancer because they never thought they'd see another one. Mm. Come around, come see. Wow. Um, and then we had cigarettes uh, introduced in the United States in the early 1900s. And 25 years after we had the rise in smoking, you see this beautiful rise in, in lung cancer. And again, one of the great accomplishments of the last 50 years is we've peaked uh, smoking in the United States. And as soon as we've peaked and we go down, 25 years later, you see a decrease in lung cancer. So I think if you think a lot of our diseases are reflective of, of our society and the society choices that individuals, but more importantly, the choices that society makes. You know, obesity in 1990 mm. was 10% of Americans. Now it's 30%. Goodness. Well, what's that? You know, that's not genetic changes. You know, that's the same gene, same population. That's just a change in our society's values and, you know, what we're feeding our kids and what we allow to be promoted and uh, advertised. Um, so Parkinson's uh, numerous, I'll back up. Parkinson's, Dr. Parkinson, 1817, describes uh, uh, Parkinson's in London. It wasn't called Parkinson's disease. Then he, someone else named it after him. And he said, this is something that's not been classified in the medical literature before. He said, this is something new. I'm si he's 61 years old. He's been practicing medicine for 30 years. His dad's a doc. So if you're 61, what's going to get you to write a, a long essay describing six people is you got to be seeing something new and something like, hey, I haven't seen this before. And he's describing six people, three of whom he just really observing walking the streets of London with Parkinson's. Well, what's hmm. going on in 1817 in London? It's the height of the Industrial Revolution. England's the capital, and there's something called the London Fog. And the London Fog, I don't know if you guys have been watching The Crown or thing like mm -hmm. that, the London Fog has everything to do with air pollution. It was so bad you couldn't even see across the street. People would be walking around covering their mouths and nose because they didn't, it would burn uh, their mouths and nose. And since that time, numerous products and byproducts of the Industrial Revolution, including air pollution, synthetic man-made pesticides, mm -hmm developed after World War II, industrial chemicals and heavy metals have all been linked to Parkinson's disease. In areas of the world that are most industrialized, that have the highest rates of air pollution, pesticide use, and chemicals have the highest rates of Parkinson's disease, I think the United States, Western Europe. Areas that are least industrialized, like Sub-Saharan Africa, have the least amounts of Parkinson's disease. Mm, wow. In areas of the world that are undergoing the most rapid industrialization, think China and India, have the fastest increasing rates of Parkinson's disease. Um, and, you know, you put a little lag, you know, 25 years, just like we talk about cigarettes and, and lung cancer. And so we think to the extent that humans have brought about uh, Parkinson's disease, not all cases, but a large proportion of them, to the extent that we brought about uh, Parkinson's disease, we can end it and we can prevent it. We can prevent people from ever getting Parkinson's disease in the first place. I always say, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, be cured of cancer. I just don't want to get cancer in the first place. Right. Yeah. It's like for you guys, it's like, you know, I don't want to be cured of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I don't want to get in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what can we do as a society and as individuals to prevent ourselves from ever getting, uh, you know, these diseases, whether it's Parkinson's or CTE or COVID, you know, we don't have cure COVID. We prevent COVID. We don't cure it even, mm -hmm. you know, uh, two years into this. So, 
Uh, that's what we try to do is, you know, uh, what can we do to prevent people from ever getting the diseases in the first? So place? as the brain is concerned, what does what does Parkinson's describe Parkinson's disease? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so Parkinson's classically, uh, when Dr. Parkinson described it, has three or four main features. One's usually a rest tremor, tremor in somebody's hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, second is slowness of movement. Uh, you're really slow in uh, doing things. Uh, third is stiffness. And fourth is difficulty walking. So like people who have been brave enough and shared their stories, Michael J. Fox, mm-hmm. right. Muhammad Ali, uh, Brian Grant, yes. uh, former NBA yep. uh, uh, basketball player, Davis Finney, former Olympian uh, cyclist, uh, Tour de France uh, winner, uh, Alan Alda, in the NFL, uh, you know, Forrest Gregg, uh, right. head coach of the Cincinnati Bengals mm-hmm. in Super Bowl 16, uh, uh, died with Parkinson's disease. Uh, so those are, um, those. that's what Parkinson's high level. It's, it really turned out the the neat thing, really, the really smart German pathologist 2003 said, Parkinson's doesn't begin the brain. Parkinson's disease is fundamentally not a brain disease. Parkinson's disease begins outside the brain. Parkinson's disease begins either in the nose or the gut and then spreads to the brain and causes all these neurological problems. And so you say, well, nose and the gut. Well, what's, what's that got to do with Parkinson's disease? Well, that's where air pollution, uh, pesticides, yeah. industrial chemicals, and uh, inhaled heavy metals, they are either enter in through the nose or pesticides, you know, or contaminated groundwater are consumed uh, through the gut. And so that the earliest symptoms of Parkinson's aren't tremor, they're actually loss of smell, Mm. and constipation so people develop a loss of smell and constipation 20 years before the tremor appears so that's really insight 2003 heiko brock said hey guys parkinson's disease, you know we all think it's a brain disease it's actually not the disease actually begins in the nose for many people begins in the nose or the gut and oh by the way that's where these environmental pathogens uh, disease causing factors uh, enter the body and oh by that's the way that's where the earliest symptoms of the disease are, are apparent so what does it do once it gets to the brain? The neurological effect, right? You said constipation, um, uh, loss of smell, but neurologically, what, is it, what does it do within the brain? So um, classically, it leads to loss of nerve cells that produce a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Um, and so dopamine is responsible for controlling motor function. And, and it's in a particular circuit in the brain uh, that controls movement. So they have a lot of trouble initiating movement and a lot of trouble stopping movement. Uh, so if you see people with Parkinson's disease, they're shuffling their feet often very, really, really, really fast, and they have a hard time starting to walk. If you mm-hmm. ever seen the movie Awakenings right. with Robert De Niro and Robin Williams, you have the person's walking, and they get stuck, and they can't move their feet, and they have a lot of time uh, stopping it. So they have a lot of trouble with their motor function because that circuit is affected. As I alluded to, it's not just that motor circuit that's affected, but there are lots of other circuits, including the circuits that affect depression and mood and anxiety. There are circuits that affect memory and cognition, which are affected later in the disease. So as the disease marches its way through from the nose and gut to the lower parts of the brain to the higher parts of the brain, you see other symptoms uh, develop. want to take a quick break from the episode and tell you guys about a brand new partnership uh, because you guys listen to the podcast, uh, companies are now coming to us yes. and wanted to be a part of this. Yeah. And that's 100% because of you guys. So wanted to tell you about an exciting new partnership. Man, this is have. a great, great partnership. And it's a longtime friendship that I've had with Choctaw Casino and Resort located uh, in Durant, Oklahoma, just across the Red River here. Uh, easy drive, great people, 
great resort. The new renovations going on. Got a fantastic pool that's outside. So if you got kids, if you have kids, or if you just want to get away uh, alone with your wife, your girlfriend, uh, whatever, your partner, doesn't matter what it is, go over to uh, uh, Choctaw Casino Resort. Have a great time. Again, we always talk about relationships on this podcast we have a great relationship with Walt, Walter Allen, who's over there. And, and the people over at Choctaw Casino have just been wonderful. Yeah. Hopefully uh, you don't have a wife and a girlfriend at the same time. Hey, a little bit of both, <laughs> but have a good time anyway. But yeah, like Darren said, go check them out. Choctaw Casino and Resort. Now back to the episode. Man, that is something. So, okay, I, I think this is, re- this is intriguing because, yes, we're speaking specifically to, to Parkinson's right, right this moment. But I want to marinate on the f- fact of our environment what we're consuming what we are surrounding ourselves with the life the life that we're living is causing not just parkinson's but i mean there are so many other diseases that we are now introducing because of our lifestyle so let's talk about let's talk about preventative actions as as parents and so two parents here um what can we be doing to be aware so that Okay, not only are we preventing Parkinson's, but also other other uh, diseases that are lurking everywhere. Listen, you know, you guys are both athletes. Uh, you know, if you want to, uh, the benefits of sports and athletics is just overwhelmingly positive. Mm. Uh, for Parkinson's disease, people who are physically active at my age, you know, I'm in your age, in their 40s and 50s, three and a half to four hours of running or swimming a week decreases your risk of Parkinson's by mm. 20%. Jeez. Three and a half to four hours of vigorous exercise a week in your 40s and 50s decreases your risk of ever developing Parkinson's wow. disease by 20%. That's like a no-brainer, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's yeah. just and that's just Parkinson's. That also holds true for uh, Alzheimer's disease. That holds probably even more true for cardiovascular disease, for cancer. You know, why we view sports and athletics, just PE, as optional is crazy, right? right? That should just be core to, you know, there should be a sport for every person and every person in a sport. Full right. stop. Sport for every person and every person in a sport. And that we should be doing that for kids. And, you know, we're not doing it in COVID. We, I mean, just like, you know, you can go outside and you're not going to get COVID uh, by and large. So uh, I think that's a, a, a big thing. You know, pesticides, since writing this book, I buy a lot more organic. You know, pesticides are nerve toxins. They target the parts of uh, energy producing parts of cells that we are know are damaged in in Parkinson's. Some dissolve in fat, so the brain is fatty, and so it gets into the brain. So uh, we need to. Um, uh, I buy a lot more organic. I wash all my fruits and vegetables, and we need to tell the EPA that we need to get rid of dangerous, toxic uh, uh, pesticides that we know increase the risk for Parkinson's, that we know increase the risk for cancer, that we know increase the risk for ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, we need to, you know, call on uh, our government to represent and uh, make our food safe for us. Um, those are things I can go on. You know, yeah. trauma is a big head trauma is a big issue yes. for Parkinson's yeah. disease for yeah. ALS. You know, we will talk about football, but you know, and, you know, if you're biking, you should wear a, a helmet. If you're skiing, you should wear a helmet. You know, everyone puts a seatbelt on, and no one's like it's all bent out of shape. Uh, in a car and uh you know that saves saves lots of lives right um so there are lots of things that we can do both as individuals and a society to decrease our risk of parkinson's and a wide range of other conditions so i wanted to go down that road because this is one of the reasons i really wanted to get on this interview with you was the the effects of playing football or a 
a violent sport where the you know the head trauma is involved, whether it be football or MMA, boxing, or just boxing as well. Yeah. I mean, what is it? What's your thought process on allowing? an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, you know, a young kid to play football starting at the age of eight. Yeah, I'd be concerned. So if you guys haven't, every NFL player should read this paper. So I'm going to show you that this paper, if you guys haven't read it, you should read it. So this is the, I think the most important paper. Can you see my screen? Yes. This is the most important paper for every NFL player concerned about chronic traumatic encephalopathy should read it. And you should invite Dr. Ann McKee right down here, Ann McKee from Boston University. You should have her on your show. She's outstanding. So in 2017, not too long ago, they looked at uh, the brains of 202 uh, people who had volunteered to donate their brains uh, who had played football. 202 brains. People donate their brains to evaluate mm. uh, uh, their brains after they died. Of that 202, 177 had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Mm. So of the 202, 177, 87% uh, had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. These are people who volunteer to give their brains. So it's not just a random sample. So this is, this is limited in that respect. Of that, there were 111 NFL players at this 202, 110, 99% had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Wow. Nothing in science gives you 99%. Wow. Like, so, you know, only, to give you a flavor, only 10% of smokers develop lung cancer. Mm. But 110 of 111 NFL football players develop chronic traumatic encephalopathy in this study. How many people operate? with CTE that may not see symptoms or may not feel the effects um, or even know until post-mortem? Yeah. So a lot of people uh, don't have it, but in this study, a large proportion of people did have symptoms uh, okay. of the disease. And okay. um, in the study, the more you played football, so like the NFL players were more likely to have CTE and more likely to have symptoms than even the high school players. So in this yeah. study, I think they looked at uh, 17 high school players, just played high school, no more. And even three of those 17, 20% of the people in high school only had CTE in their brains. So, okay, and and, and bringing it real here. So I played football for 28 years of my life. Um, How, when do you really start to see that decay in in you know functionality of the brain or you really start to see those effects because because i'm five years out five years out of retirement um you know i would and who knows right i don't i don't have anything to compare it personally to i just this is kind of how i've i've felt like my life is just gone and i still feel very functional but when when is when is it when i should start to say okay hey these are things that i I need to start paying attention to and then and then i've got a follow-up question after that um, so, wow. And I know um, this is not your area of expertise, so I, yeah, I don't want to, yeah, yeah. I don't want to put that on you and maybe that's, maybe that's an unfair question. So, um, in the study, the average age at death, right? These are all people who didn't have their brains after was yeah. like around 66. My yeah. guess is people were experiencing symptoms in their forties and fifties, you know, uh, and McKee will tell you exactly yeah. when, but, uh, that's when I think okay. people would start okay. experiencing it. So on the show, we really do talk about um, maximizing, maximizing the life that we've been given and, and making sure that we are, con- like you said earlier, continuing to learn, but t- continuing to grow. 
Uh, so from a mental health and brain health standpoint, you mentioned exercise, you mentioned eating organic. Is there anything else? Because, you know, there's, there's the concept of functional neurology and I, and I don't know your, your opinion on that, but that we can actually help build our brain like a, like a muscle. Yeah. So there, uh, so I told you about, uh, uh about exercise, 20% yes. decreased risk, um, Mediterranean diet, high in fruits and vegetables, low in animal products can also mm. decrease your risk of Parkinson's disease by likely 20% less robust evidence. But, and everything I say for Parkinson's disease also extends to likely to Alzheimer's disease and ALS, yeah. but you're just talking to a Parkinson's expert. So yeah. I look at the world through <laughs> yeah. a defined yeah. lens. It's yeah. like Parkinson's. Um, uh, the uh, other thing is sleep. Uh, so there was a really good study uh, suggesting that people who sleep, I think more than seven hours a day are less likely to develop dementia uh, mm. than uh, people who don't. Um, so that's a, another a big thing. Um, I, I, can I go to the football thing for a little bit? Yeah, yes. So, you know, your, your whole thing is freedom, right? You know, the whole right. thing Darren Woodson shows like you have this great uh, piece on freedom. I think professional athletes should be able to participate in their sports and be free from developing neurological complications. Yeah. We shouldn't be having sports that are putting 110 out of 111 people to develop uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. We should modify, you know, neurologists, we should modify sports so that we decrease the risk of people uh, being uh, developing, you know, long-term complications of it. People should be professional athletes and be free from, having significant adverse health consequences. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone gets bad out of shape if a swimmer is going to develop a little bit of a sore shoulder when they're, you know, 50 or 60 years old. Yeah. But, you know, you'd like to be able to, like, you know, know your name and, you know, interact with your family members and not yeah. worry about being uh, hyper impulsive or aggressive or moody or acting out your dreams or yeah. being demented uh, because of a sport, because of your being a professional athlete in a particular sport. Yeah. We need to make people, professional athletes should be able to have the freedom uh, from long-term health consequences because of their activity. Okay, so how does that? Hell yeah, we need to Here go we go. down this road. Here we go. <laughs> okay, so we all understand that the NFL is the 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 biggest sport in America, right? I mean, it it is what it is, and it's a violent sport. How do how do you see there being changes within a sport that is so popular and a lot of money's being made off that sport? What are you seeing as far as the changes that could be made? Yeah, so again, I'm not an athlete on a football thing. One, I would say it's a little bit concerning that we're having other sports emerge that are having even more uh, violence yeah. toward the brain that are emerging, and I think we should think about it. Um, you know, I'm kind of surprised that flag football and things like that haven't taken off uh, quite as much. You know, wouldn't it be really cool to see Darren Woodson, you know, uh, trying to chase down A.J. Green uh, and get his flag? I mean, I, I think that would now be... Now you're playing uh, into Darren's weaknesses. Put yeah. him in the open field. <laughs> Take the contact out of it. I'm too old. Dr. Ray, I'm out. <laughs> so, you know, I think we got to think about uh, how, to, how it's done. You know, I know they're working on helmets. And I know they're working on uh, different things. And, you know, you know, the special teams. And, I, you know, yeah. right. there's some things that are, like, uh, out because it's just a little bit crazy to have someone running down... Yeah. So you can make some modifications, but I think you could just think about different ways of, of doing the sports uh, to to do it. You yeah. know, yeah, I agree. You know, Chris and I mean, Borland, we talk about in the book, Chris Borland, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. linebacker, yes, linebacker, 49ers, yeah. right? Yeah. It was all rookie or whatever, uh, and then he retired after his rookie year, yeah, because he said, you know, I've seen the evidence, I've heard the stories, and thanks, but no thanks, even though this is what I love to do. 
Yeah. Um, I think if you love to, you know, it's great that I think sports are a huge part of society, a huge mm-hmm. benefit. You know, I just said that every person should be engaged in a sport and there should be a sport for every person. You just shouldn't be having sports that are going to cause, you know, 110 of 111 yeah. football players. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think that's a great point. And, and, you know, take your neurologist hat off and put your, put your fan hat on. And I think that's the question is like, okay, can, can I, would I still engage with this sport? Would this still be the, the entertaining sport if we took X, Y, and Z out of it that, that make it? And, and I agree with you. I think the game, the game needs to change. We know too much. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the technique has to be cleaned up. Um, you know, and there's, and there's avenues out there. There's this flex football concept that's in between flag and tackle that gives you kind of a soft shell helmet mm. so that you can't use your head as a weapon. I mean, there's certain things that, that, that I think are on the horizon. There's just a question is what's the public reaction, right? The public's calling for it, but are they going to like the results of it? So to give you an example, NBA. Mm-hmm. far less violent than it used to be. You know, Kevin yeah. McHale taking out Kurt Rambis. It doesn't happen. And, yeah. you know, we got Steph Curry, right? Yeah. Right. right? It changes. No, that's a, I mean, that's a great point, right? It, mm-hmm. it, different, different, um, different athletes, different styles. It, it all evolves. And, and that's a great point. Yeah. Cause like the, the nineties Detroit Pistons would never, ever, they wouldn't have a roster five minutes, five minutes into <laughs> yeah, the first quarter. Out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So as we, I want to get back to Parkinson's and I want to, I want to talk about your book um, and how you, and you mentioned some things to prevent it, but what are we doing from a research to actually treat the disease for people that, that uh, currently are, are experiencing it? Yeah. So there's 1.2 million Americans who have the disease uh, right now. 200 people will be diagnosed today, including a couple people people we're just mm. talking uh, right now. A hundred people will die with the disease today. A hundred Americans will die with Parkinson's uh, today. So we need to come up with, in addition to preventing people from ever getting in the first place, we need to come up with better treatments. Um, there are some genetic causes, about 15% of people, 10, 15% of people with Parkinson's have genetic causes, and we're developing gene-directed therapies. So just mm. like in cancer, we have gene-directed therapies. Yeah. There are gene-directed therapies and Parkinson's disease that are in the pipeline. turns out that Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease and, quite frankly, chronic traumatic encephalopathy see these misfolded proteins that are found in the brain. And so there's actually, just like we immunize against uh, the spike protein in COVID-19, we have immunizations against the COVID-19. They are now trying to develop immunizations, vaccines against Parkinson's disease, vaccines against Alzheimer's disease. You could even imagine vaccines against uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Wow. Those are still early stages, but, yeah. you know, we just had this great therapeutic breakthrough in terms of developing a vaccine within one year of a new virus mm-hmm. uh, emerging. Can we apply that know-how and that great success story, one of the great accomplishments in the history of medicine, at least since I've been in medicine? Can we apply that to the leading source of disability in the world, brain diseases? And I think there could be a lot of promise yeah. uh, to be had there. So, go ahead. I'll say research on the human brain is tough yeah. because access to the brain, to actually see it in action yeah. and see it, obviously the CTE, it's post-mortem. Now we get to right. study it after the fact. What are, what are some technologies that are evolving or are there any that help neurologists and yeah, researchers really question. dig in and understand yep. the brain at a higher level? Because do you, do you disagree that we still have a ton to learn about the human brain? Yeah, no, we're, we're way behind. So, you know, if you want to know if you have uh, 
uh, heart disease, you know, you can get to go to the doctor and get a blood test and measure your cholesterol and yeah. you can be told what to yeah. do about that. Relatively yeah. straightforward. If you want to know uh, if you have HIV, there's a test to tell you we have HIV and you can evaluate, you know, the, the level of virus in the blood go down with treatment, you know, and you can measure it and find out. Mm. Uh, you can't really do that for Parkinson's disease, and it's really hard to do it for other brain diseases. Imaging is the biggest area, you know, in the last 20, 30, 40 years is that you can image the brain. And you've probably seen pictures of people with chronic traumatic encephalopathy in vivo, you know, while they're still living. You can see lots of just the volume of the brain has shrunk in people with chronic uh, traumatic encephalopathy. So imaging has been our biggest tool for uh, better assessing the brain. Uh, imaging, though, usually just gives you a static look at the brain. So, like, you know, you do an ultrasound and echocardiogram of the heart, you can see the heart, you know, pumping and the right. like. We have no really good functional assays of the brain other than, you know, something called an EEG for seizures. So we mm. really don't can't see the brain function um, as well as we'd like to do and certainly as well as we can do for uh, other parts of the body. So I, I want to get a little personal here. My, personally, I, I my pastor at the church just – just announced that he had Parkinson's about six, six, seven months ago. And of course, through ignorance, I didn't know um, to the extent of, of what that looked like. So, you know, I did my own little research, but tell, tell us what, what would be his, I mean, are, are there different levels or is it, you know, what are some of the, uh, so what are some of the things that he's going to have to go through here in the next months to treat Parkinson's and can he treat it? Uh, so one, sorry to hear about that. Two, you'll connect me to your pastor, and I'm happy to help them out. Absolutely. Um, uh, three, people can function at a really, really high level for five to ten years with Parkinson's, and sometimes even more. Um, you know, Michael J. Fox had Parkinson's now for 30 years, and I think he's written three books and been on two new shows right. uh, all since he's uh, had it. Janet Reno, I don't remember, was the former oh, attorney yeah. general of the yeah. United States. Yeah. She had Parkinson's and uh, served as attorney general. Pope John Paul II, you know, for your pastor, mm. yep. had Parkinson's disease. And, you know, the last few years of his life were really uh, troubling. But, you know, he was probably had Parkinson's for more than 10 years and was uh, highly effective as a pope. Uh, for it. Brian Grant, the former oh, NFL, uh, yeah. former NBA basketball yep. player, yep. likely had Parkinson's while he was still playing in the NBA. Wow. This guy, wow. uh, Rich Clifford, did a spacewalk at age 43, uh, two years after he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Mm. So if you can do a spacewalk, if you can be an attorney general, if you can be a pope and you can write books and you can play in the NBA all with Parkinson's disease. <laughs> Brian Grant didn't have a great year, but um, uh, you can function at a high level. Uh, exercise is hugely beneficial, not only to prevent Parkinson's disease, but to, uh, to uh, but beneficial for people with the disease. Numerous studies have shown that bicycling, swimming, vigorous exercise helps people with Parkinson's. So that's what your pastor should mm. do at least an hour a day. And I mentioned Parkinson's is loss of these dopamine producing nerve cells in the brain. The most effective medication, which is quite effective, is something called levodopa, which is just a precursor to that dopamine. Mm -hmm. And so people with Parkinson's disease can really function with that medicine and exercise and appropriate care at a really high level for the first five to 10 years of disease. The problem with these diseases is they get worse over time. The nerve cells continue to die off, mm -hmm. and therefore you need more and more medication. The more and more any medication you take, the more and more adverse effects, side effects you get. Uh, of that medication and the disease can be quite disabling, uh, especially over the long term. But people, especially the first five to 10 years in general, can function at a really high level with the disease and lead productive lives as a pastor, as an actor, mm -hmm. uh, as an athlete. You know? What about uh, what about caffeine and what about um, 
uh, what's the artificial sweetener that uh, aspartame? So uh, aspartame, yes, aspartame. yeah, yeah. So caffeine, it turns out, decreases your risk of developing Parkinson's disease and might be helpful. So you get this is your excuse to have your one to four cups of caffeinated, uh, <laughs> caffeinated coffee or tea uh, or or chocolate. If you're like me, uh, that's what uh, that's what uh, that could be uh, uh, beneficial. Caffeine has its own side effects, anxiety and headaches and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, but it can be beneficial. Uh, artificial sweeteners probably, to my knowledge, have no role in Parkinson's disease. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I, I've grown really skeptical of um, some of the things we do to ourselves and some of the things that we eat since writing this book. Yeah, and that's and I think that, you know, you talked about pesticides and, and the effects that those have. But what about these processed foods and, and, and the amount and, and whether that leads to obesity, whether... Yeah, so obesity is like, you know, I mean... Again, we're doing it to ourselves. Ten yeah. percent U.S. obesity in 1990, right? So when you're playing college football at ASU, you know, ten percent of people obese. Now it's over thirty percent. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of things that we can see in our society that we can see in our kids' school. I, I was at the University of Alabama. My brother is a psychiatrist in Alabama, and um, I, I was like flabbergasted at the flagship school for Alabama, how many people I saw that were 15 to 50 pounds overweight Mm -hmm. at age 19. I mean, I mean just, and, and then I was like, why is this? And then I went to the, the, the student union, the student union was only fat was essentially only fast food. food. And that's where every kid was eating. Not every day, but multiple meals a day. Right. in the student union. And I'm like, you're a university. Why are we doing this? And, you know, even my hospital does it. We have Pepsi machines in, in, in the hospital cafeteria. Right. I mean, we're just making some really fundamentally bad decisions that are having enormous adverse consequences, you know, for the best and brightest, right? Yeah. It's the best and brightest exactly. of Alabama, and we're pumping them full of fast food. And that's the reason why we do this show. This yeah. is the reason why. What you just said right now, uh, Doc is is the reason why we do the show because a lot of people are just not aware. Specifically, young kids or parents are just not aware of what they're doing by ordering fast foods, by going to places where their kids are drinking soda. I mean, we we give our kids we give kids our the access to this, right? And, so, go ahead. Yeah, and we're doing it. And Alabama's got a lot of farmers who would love to sell their crops yeah, and right. keep their kids to have healthy lives, right? Right. Mm-hmm. right. And how about helping the economy of Alabama? Do multinational corporations really need the money from the University of Alabama students? I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, I know we're, we're running up against your deadline here, but I do want for those uh, that talk about your book, is this a book for someone that, okay, hey, we need to, uh, Parkinson's is, whether, I know someone or I already have it, or is this a book that should be read by just everyone in order to prevent it, in order to make sure that this is not a disease that, that affects me and my family? So one, it's written for the general audience. So it's not technical that we have 800 references. So if you want to go techie and you want to go geek, you can, but it talks about Chris Borland. Mm -hmm. It talks about Muhammad Ali. It talks Mm -hmm. about Forrest Gregg. It talks about Michael J. Fox. It tells everything's told through stories. So it's about stories of regular people from all different parts of the world and uh, their experiences with Parkinson's, everything from researchers to patients with the disease. So it's written for everyone. Second, any of your listeners who can't afford the book, they're just going to email me at info at endingpd.org. 
info at endingpd.org and we'll send them a copy for free. Just give us your mailing address and we'll send you a copy for free. I love uh, that. If anyone has questions about Parkinson's, they can just email us and we'll answer them. Info at endingpd.org. We're happy to do so. Anyone's got stories, football players, athletes who want to share their story, we love to hear them because we learn from you. I love that. Uh, so the book is written for uh, everyone um, because even if you don't have uh, Parkinson's disease, you know, my lifetime risk of developing Parkinson's as a relatively healthy doc is one in 15, mm. which is six, six, my lifetime risk of dying in a car accident is one in a hundred. So, wow. you know, I wear seatbelts and I drive yeah. a safe car and airbags mm. and all that good stuff. My lifetime risk as a doc with no really significant his family history of the disease is one in 15. Yeah. That's and, amazing. you know, I just assume not have Parkinson's disease and my wife would just assume I don't have yeah, Parkinson's That's right. Yeah. And that's, uh, either. So um, that's what we really want to do is uh, highlight uh, how we can prevent and end the disease. And we give really 25 actions on what we can do to prevent and end uh, okay, Parkinson's disease. Okay, one, one, one question real quick here before we get off here. Will we ever defeat yeah. Parkinson's disease? 100%. We can do it. We've done it. Uh, so uh, your father, your, both your parents grew up around polio and polio shut down community centers in the Mm. 1930s, forties and fifties. And then what happened, what changed the course of polio was FDR, uh, may have had the disease Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And they started a March of dimes in 1938 that literally flooded the white house with dimes. They couldn't, they they could shut down the entire white house. We talk Mm. about the, in the book, uh, raised millions of dollars for, uh, Jonas Salk and later Albert Sabin to develop a vaccine in 1954. 16 years after the March of Dimes, polio was, uh, we had a vaccine and polio is eradicated from the United States uh, and nearly eradicated from the, re- the entire world. You and I don't, there's not even a polio treatment. Yeah, right. There's not even a polio doctor in mm-hmm. the U.S. because no one's got polio. By uh, 1980s, not so long ago, another virus was uniformly and rapidly fatal, unidentified, unknown. And then a group of activists in New York City and San Francisco made their voices heard. They created something called ACT UP. They said for people with HIV, silence equals death. That was mm. silence equals death. And they changed the course of it. Think Magic Johnson. When Magic right. Johnson was diagnosed, yeah. everyone thought he was going to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here he is, you know, how many more championships later, mm. you know, how many different businesses, you know, the man's amazing. Uh, and they changed the course. And for Parkinson's, silence equals suffering. So we've addressed it with polio. We've addressed it with uh, HIV, how many millions of us don't have HIV because of the bravery and the courage of those activists? I mean, right. think about that, mm-hmm. right? Yep. That yes. we don't have it. Right. We're not treated. We just don't have it because, mm-hmm. you know, they figured out the safe sex practices and condoms are widely used. We're a condom. And then, you know, mothers against drunk driving, a third example. They realized that the, the goal of the dr- mothers against drunk driving who suffered unspeakable harm right to their families they didn't say we need more trauma centers and better ambulances. They say we need to stop drinking and driving right. and drinking and driving is socially unacceptable right now. You know, for your kids, it was just like, you know, it's like the worst. I mean, it's like, yeah, like yeah. What, who would think about drinking? You don't even yeah. discuss it as a parent. Right. It's like, cause they already know. So three great examples of where in history, when people have made their voices heard really uh, had huge courage we need to follow the courage of the Michael J. Foxes, the Brian Grants, the David Spinneys of the world, yep. and make our voices heard and stop Parkinson's disease and stop chronic traumatic encephalopathy and make the world better, not just for our generation, but for all subsequent generations. Right. I love that. Yeah. And I love that stance because that goes against 
so that our healthcare system really as a whole, right? Mm. The revenue is prevent disease. The revenue is generated treating disease, not preventing it. And I love, I love your mindset. And, and, And if you take anything away from this, whether it's cancer, whether it's Parkinson's, whether it's Alzheimer's, they are preventable by how you take care of your body, what you consume, how you move. There are so many things that you can do to lower your risk and ultimately get, eradicate these diseases. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. Dr. Ray Dorsey, one more time. How can we find you? Uh, info at endingpd.org. If you have a question, anything about Parkinson's, let us know. Uh, Mr. Woodson, you'll connect your pastor to me. We'll Absolutely. be happy to set him up. Uh, and take care of them. Anyone can't afford the book. We're delighted to send you a free copy info at endingpd.org and delighted to come back on the show and do it in person. Yeah. Yes. Next time for sure. For sure. You're going to come with great news too. Next time for sure. Outstanding. Thank you guys. Thanks Thanks again.